This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. Yesterday, the Ontario Patient Ombudsman Office issued a call for complaints from family members, residents and staff at long-term care homes amid the COVID-19 pandemic. They want to hear about situations where the safety of residents and staff may be in significant Jeopardy. And this is something of a departure for the four-year-old office, which was first headed up by the current health minister, Christine Elliott. Joining me now, Craig Thompson, executive director of the patient ombudsman. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much, Libby, for inviting me and for helping us to raise awareness about how COVID-19 is affecting long-term care. Okay. Uh, first of all, I, I have to admit that the last time I looked, your position was still not filled. So uh, how long have you been in the saddle and, and is the office completely up and running now? The office is, is, is completely up and running and it's been just over two years um, that our, our first patient ombudsman uh, went uh, resigned. But we continue to function um, fully. We, we, the way that our legislation works, um, the delegations and the authorities flow down to the to myself and our and and the staff, and we continue to do the work of taking complaints, resolving complaints, uh, and in some cases, uh, initiating investigations. Oh, okay, so you're not exactly her replacement. Not at all. Okay, okay. Uh, well, good to hear. Um, so. Why did you decide to do this, to make a call for complaints, which is not how you usually operate? No, it's an extraordinary time. And, and we, what we've heard through our complaints that we did, um, we have been getting uh, since March 2nd, when we began to really track COVID-19, is there, there was an increase in complaints um, around COVID-19 for within um, all the three sectors that we have oversight. Um, but in particularly within long-term care, we were seeing a dis- disproportionately larger number of complaints related to COVID-19 in that sector. So that's very worrisome to us um, when you see a you see a jump in complaints in, in one particular sector. Um, but also, so the nature of some of those complaints were concerning to us because uh, we were hearing from um, you know residents, families, and staff about severe staffing shortages. So. Um, and that would, you know, not allow uh, a home to sort of meet the basic needs of, of residents' um, care needs. But we're also hearing about inadequate infection prevention and control measures um, and also just generally poor communications from the home with families and residents. And during a time when you can't visit your loved one in a long-term care, this is that's really very disturbing Um because uh, you really feel quite, uh, you know, it's very confusing for, for families uh, and very challenging for them when they can't actually visit their fam- their loved one. Uh, let me ask you this. I mean, at this time, finally, uh, we are all aware of what's going on in long-term care. We are, we hear about it from public health. We hear about it in the media. Everybody seems to be keenly aware which homes are affected. The, the military was called in. 
the province is talking about it. Uh, so this is a situation that, that we are aware of and, and, uh, we know that the pandemic has really, really hit the long-term care sector. So what is your role in this? What, what will you be adding to the conversation? Well, we, we have a particular perspective in the fact that we, we listen to complaints from, from residents and their families and caregivers. And that's a very unique kind of voice um, that we hear because this is from individuals who are, who are there intimately involved with sometimes with the care of their loved one in a long-term care setting. So they have eyes on, on the ground that, that um, is really important insights for us. So what we're wanting to, to make sure is that anybody um, who's got uh, a situation that they're concerned about where the health and safety of a resident is in, is in jeopardy or, or a home is, is, is struggling, that they know that uh, obviously they, they sh- hopefully they're able to complain to that home, but if they can't or they're, or they're um, not satisfied with the response they're getting from that home, that they have us as an option to come to and, and to speak to our staff. And we will, um, based on the severity of the, of the complaint, um, either reach out immediately to the home um, or to other agencies like the Ministry of Health or um, the Public Health Unit, um, and at a minimum provide information and the support that um, patients and families uh, are so, or residents and families are so are desperate for in these sort of very confusing times. Again, how is that different from all the other avenues? Like I said, we are we are seeing this unfold before our eyes. I know that that we had an issue here that uh, CARP was able to help with, where a, a family member wasn't able to get through to get any information. So that is that what you're going to be doing? Essentially, we we are in the position of being able to hear the stories and understand what the issues are that are being expressed to us, and then relay that back to the organization that's in the best position to help. So we are we are an, um, an oversight body, but do not have the power to to compel an organization to respond in any in any way. That is really the um, responsibility of of the of the home itself or the um, Ministry of Long-Term Care. Um, they have those abilities to to enforce. But for us, it's really it's, it's making sure we can we hear the stories accurately, and then we can relay the information back as quickly as we can. So it's it's another feedback mechanism that um, that we provide, um, and making sure the information gets out. And uh, how many complaints have you had so far? Today we've had 143 uh, complaints related to COVID-19. And just over a quarter of those complaints are related to long-term care. And the others? And the other ones would be from our other um, areas. So public hospitals um, are having uh, complaints about COVID-19, home care, and then other um, aspects of the healthcare system that we don't have jurisdiction over. We still get people calling us because they're unsure as to where they can complain or or they just need some information. So we get those complaints as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, have you seen any change in the last week, say, since the military was called in to those five homes? We, 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 don't, we haven't seen any kind of uh, shift that way. The, the complaints are still falling within that, that sort of three large areas of, of, um, of issues around, you know, the sh- severe staffing shortages, the um, inadequate infection prevention and control and just poor communications, they still fall within those those realms. 
Uh, and uh, that's a that that uh, you received over a hundred complaints um, since Monday. Is that how unusual would that be? Well, this is since we started tracking March second. So, um, so our volumes of complaints are, are, is actually quite steady, relatively historically. Um, but what has changed for us is, is that fact that we have forty percent of our complaints now are about COVID nineteen, and of the of that. Um, a higher proportion of them are about long-term care than we are typically seeing. Uh-huh. And uh, that wouldn't be surprising given what's going on, would it? No, it wouldn't be surprising. I mean, you you just have to, as you said, read read uh, in the media the, the crisis that is, that is affecting long-term care to know that there is um, a lot of people um, facing some serious challenges and it's very confusing for people. So it's, it's not unusual. It, it, it's obviously an impact um, because of that. Okay. Craig Thompson, thank you very much for being with us. My pleasure. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, as we said, those terrible situations in long-term care are coming to light in a variety of ways. Last week, a proposed Class action suit was filed in Toronto against the Responsive Group, which manages and advises multiple private long-term care and retirement homes. Uh, so right now, let's bring in Jane Medis, who is a staff lawyer and the institutional advocate at the Advocacy Centre for the Elderly, which is a community legal clinic for low-income seniors. Hi, Jane. Hi, Lydia. So you've just heard from the patient ombudsman. They're asking for complaints about nursing homes. Uh, this at a time when, frankly, we're all getting to see complaints against nursing homes. Uh, what do you think that avenue will add to the, um, to the knowledge we have? Well, I mean, anything that can bring a light to the problems in long-term care, I think, is, is very important. Um, I think that, you know, if people are aware of all the different avenues that are available to them, um, and if the patient ombudsman has a, a, is able to contact homes or different organizations which may be swamped right now because of COVID and get through, I think that that will be very helpful if they can help resolve some of the issues that are going on. Okay, let's bring in Melissa Miller, who is a partner at Howie Sachs and Henry in the area of elder law. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Libby. Thank you so much for having me on. Okay, you're very welcome. Well, uh, we're trying to round out the situation here. So the patient ombudsman made a call for complaints against nursing homes in the COVID-19 pandemic. And uh, frankly, my question is, I think that finally we are all getting to see the shortcomings and the problems that exist there, you know, uh, in other ways. Do you think that that avenue will really help uh, add to our knowledge and add to solving the problem? Absolutely. Uh, I, I mean, it's Jane and I actually know each other and we've spoken about this several times. Uh, you know, it's it's my opinion that well, first of all, we can't use COVID-19 as a scapegoat for what's happening right now in these homes. These issues have long predated what we're seeing, and what's happening in these homes is a direct result of the systemic issues that have been longstanding. And I'm hoping that uh, the silver lining in all of this is that we'll finally see some positive, real change after all this is said and done. 
What about this proposed class action lawsuit that uh, was just filed here in Toronto, Jane? Uh, I mean, do do any nursing homes have an excuse that in, we're in the middle of a crisis? It's a pandemic. Stuff is beyond their control. Uh, no, I don't think so. Um, you know, I, I, this is a long-standing problem. Um, you know, Melissa and I have talked many times about you know the, the systemic issues that we have. It's been a failure of the government to properly regulate uh, and ensure the safety and properly fund the system. And the homes, I mean, you know, they're they're taking the money whether they're for profit or not for profit. Um, in an agreement with the government to say that they're going to provide appropriate care, and they just have not been doing it. And, uh, you know, it's just an entire failure of the, the the whole system. And, you know, so if something like a cost action lawsuit works, you know, great. Uh, Melissa, uh, in in this environment where we are in the midst of a crisis, is do you think that's the right way to go, filing lawsuits? It's one way to go. I think it's certainly bringing some attention to this. Uh, I just right before this, uh, this call, uh, I was meeting with a family virtually, of course, to discuss, uh, filing our own lawsuit against one of the other affected retirement homes. I've been getting a ton of calls about this myself. So I think a lawsuit, lawsuits are one tool in the toolbox. And to Jane's point, you know, we've got regulations in place that are supposed to be governing the way homes have emergency protocols and outbreak measures. And I'm not aware of any home coming out and advising the public what they did to prepare for this. Even when we knew that it was coming, uh, we knew it was coming. We, it, the long-term care facilities across the world have been the worst hit. And Canada wasn't the first to experience the COVID-19 outbreak. So I think they should have been better prepared. Okay, let me give the numbers out again, because uh, often our audience has a lot to say about the situation in long-term care from firsthand experience. So uh, please feel free to call us, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-740. For 740. And it's interesting that you mem- uh, mentioned the preparations, because one of the things that really struck me when I was talking to the Minister of Long-Term Care was that as they were preparing to clear space in the hospitals, uh, which apparently are doing fine, they moved patients, those alternate level of care patients into nursing homes. I've, I found this quite surprising, not least of which because if, if, if it was thought that there was no room for these patients in nursing homes before, how, how was there suddenly room for them? Uh, but I'm, I'm wondering how much that contributed to the problem. Well, I, I can answer that. So first of all, what they did at the beginning was that they changed the rules on applications. So um, they did a couple of things. They allowed the LINs to make choices for people, which um, meant that if, if you were in hospital, so that meant that if you were in a hospital bed, you didn't really get a choice as to where you were going to go. Um, you could say no, but that would have other kind of comp- implications. So most people wouldn't say no. And they also put them on, they changed the rules so that hospital patients were now on the top of the list, which was not the case before. So they became crisis. Um so they moved all those people out of hospital thinking that would be good. The other thing that they did was once the, once the home came in outbreak, they didn't move people back to hospital. 
So you have, especially in the older homes, but even in newer ones, you had people in like in old homes in four door room and you were sharing a room with them with COVID and they just kept the people there and it kept building and building and building. And that's why we saw so many deaths because not only was the infection control and, and protocols not in place, but they were keeping the people in the homes where they continued to infect everyone else, where they did not have the ability to isolate and cohort. And what was the rationale for that? Are you aware? For keeping them in the home? Yep. Uh, the rationale is that um, generally people, when they go into long-term care, will say things like, you know, that they want to stay there. That's where they want to die. They want, don't want to be taken to hospital. Um, they often are made to sign a, a, a level of care forms. It's sort of a requirement, although it legally is not. Families sign them, which they're not legally allowed to do, but the ministry uh, pushes it anyway. Um, and these forms will say, you know, don't hospitalize me if I'm dying. Well, it was never, uh, it's not in context. Those forms were not signed when when people would, were not asked, for example, would you want to stay at the home and infect everyone else? That's, that's not a question people were asked. So it's totally out of context. Uh, but at, at, at the level, because uh, I think now they have started to move really sick people from homes into hospitals. But was yes, there a now. system rationale? You know, were they saying that we need to keep the hospitals open? I mean, because, you know, my understanding is that some of these older homes, they, they, could, they couldn't even, se- they couldn't separate non-COVID and COVID patients. No, absolutely, they couldn't. The, I mean, part of the rationale is, well, these people are elderly. Um, they aren't going to probably survive anyway. There's not a lot of, you know, a lot of, uh, help that we can provide. So we can't necessarily cure them, um, even if we put them on a ventilator. So, you know, why use those resources? I think that's part of it as well. I think there's a real discriminatory part. There were actually homes who said, we will not send patients to hospital, period. And I think that was a huge failure um, on many levels. Um, and it, it goes far back before COVID, but we see the result now. Can they do that, Melissa? Is that legal? Well, I mean, there's a lot that's been happening uh, as a result of COVID-19 that is questionable, but has, I think, been part of the emergency measures and changes to the regulations uh, that have been put in place. So I think it's really difficult to answer that question. Uh, you know, we saw some of that around uh, families trying to get their loved ones out of the homes and fighting for that. So there, there's been a lot of um, confusion and, you know, with, with the rules constantly changing, it's difficult to keep up. Wow. Yeah. And, wow. and, and part of the problem, too, is like, you know, you go back to that issue about taking people out. And at the, initially there were problems with where people were saying, I'm going to take the person out and the home saying, well, no, you can't do that. And the homes had absolutely no authority to prevent people and still don't actually. Um, they have no authority. Um, they're... The people in homes um, are not under quarantine. They may be under, the homes are under directives, but they're not under quarantine orders. So there's a lot of things that people say and the way things are interpreted that actually are not necessarily legal. Um, And so it is a real fight. My my understanding of the issue with taking people out of the homes, they were just told you're going to go to the bottom of the list. You can take them up, but you can't bring them back in. Yeah. Initially, there were actually cases where the homes were saying, "You just absolutely, we are not going to allow you to take them home. 
um, and that was just entirely illegal. Um, there was an issue about the list that changed so that if you brought them home now, uh, when the pandemic is over, there will be a change in the way people will readmit it. I'm, um, I, and I'm, Libby, just yes. uh, I, I was listening to Craig Thompson's portion, and, and he was talking about you know one of the main complaints he's getting is the lack of information, and I think that that's uh, a real a real issue. I think in the early days between uh, inadequate testing, inadequate preparation measures, and inadequate communication with family, um, you know, in, in some of the families that I've spoken with, there was extremely little information. Coming out. I, I mean, some of these homes didn't didn't provide information to the families until going into April about what was happening in these homes. It is still a problem now. It is absolutely one hundred percent. So we still get a lot of calls around absolute lack of communication. I was speaking with a client this morning whose home is in outbreak and has been for some time, and they have still not been tested. They have still not had a COVID test, even though that home has been in outbreak for a while. And, and, you know, we we see the briefings every day, and what we're told is that all the homes, certainly the ones in outbreak, they're go- everybody there is going to be tested. Do you know uh, when that's going to, to happen? Be, who knows when? Yeah, I think the when is is the big is the big <laughs> issue. Uh, yeah, well, it's supposed to be it's it's supposed to be happening quickly. I mean, one of the things that I find is that even when government moves. You know, they'll stand up there and they'll say, this is happening and we've, we've arranged for this to happen. But that is not what happens on the ground. And, and then again, if you go back to government, sometimes, you know, they get told what, what uh, whoever is on the ground thinks they want to hear. Absolutely. And I mean, we've seen, you know, some case, some litigation, or for example, by some of the um uh, unions around um, the safety of their workers. And, you know, part of the problem is even when workers are do have PPE, they're not necessarily always using it properly. So it may be protecting the staff, but not necessarily protecting the resident, for example, if you don't change or wash your gloves in between patients. That's not going to help the patients if there's an outbreak in the home. Yeah, and, and speaking of the communication, you know, we were uh, fortunate that uh, through CARP, uh, w- one of our listeners got some action, but she had a brother whose roommate had died of COVID, and the the home wasn't taking her call. She had no idea if he'd been tested, what the result was, and I mean, eventually, yes, and it, and she got very good news on all fronts, but and and in the meantime. He wasn't taken out of his bed, she said, for weeks. I mean, an older person who isn't taken out of their bed for weeks, they're not going to be able to walk. Well, that's, yeah, I mean, that's how they, that's how they yeah, you isolate them, is they just don't take them out of the bed. Yeah, and Libby, that raises another issue. I mean, uh, you know, we're talking a lot about COVID itself and, and our, uh, the most vulnerable members of our population dying from this, this virus. But one of the other issues that I'm concerned about is, you know, we already had significant amounts of understaffing in most of these homes. Um, it's only worse now. And the staff that are there are taking a lot more time to protect themselves for obvious reasons. Um, they have less time to care for the basic needs of the residents there. And, and I, I'm quite concerned that we're going to see the basic care needs of these residents falling through the cracks. And it's something, especially with the lack of oversight with families not being able to go in. 
who are, you know, there, some of them on a daily basis, monitoring the, the very basic care needs. And I, I'm really concerned about what's going on in that respect. What about uh, the reinforcements they've been getting? We've had the military in some homes. We've had hospitals sending teams in. Um, it, you know, it, it's a short-term solution, but, but do you think that that will address those problems? I, I don't know how it can. Um, you know, in addition to understaffing, we see lack of training. Um, you know, the, the, the people who work in these homes want to have the training. They want to be able to provide the best care possible to these residents, and they're often not afforded that opportunity. So I don't know how having some emergency um, people come in is going to affect positively the lack of training issues that we see to proper, to, to actually attend to the care needs of the individual, individual residents. Okay. Let's take a couple of calls. We've got Michael in Toronto. Hello, Michael. Yeah. Hi. I can't believe what I'm hearing. I said, we're going to throw these old people under the bus. We're not going to care for them. I mean, you know, these people had lives. I mean, you and I will end up some, someday in those care homes and to think that people aren't going to care for them and just, just say, oh, they're old. They're going to die anyway. Well, uh, that's what some people think, but um, that they're they're certainly not cared for adequately in a lot of these places. I won't say all because that's not true. Uh, but uh, you know, Melissa was saying at the beginning, maybe the silver lining is that this will be a wake up call. Yeah, it certainly should. But I, I just, you know, like I said, I mean, you and I uh, will end up there someday, and. Uh, you know, to think we that, live long uh, you know, these people have lives, they, they, have, they, have, they have family. I mean, the other thing, I think, that I think they should be able to go in and visit them. I mean, we do everything else. We go into supermarkets and we're going to, you know, convenience stores. But to why, uh, you know, my, my, uh, my girlfriend is in the same situation. She can't go in and see her mother because she's in a long-term care place. But I think that should be allowed. Um, well, hopefully soon it will be. Does she go and stand by the window? Yeah. No, she can't even do that. It's not even a window. She's like on the third floor, and, and it's it's not accessible at all. And all she can do is call her on, her, on the phone. And it, how's and, that working out? Well, that, that works out. She can call her and can talk to her, and, and they can actually drop parcels off because she needs certain certain things that uh, she can't get in the, in the home. So she can drop parcels off, which she does do that. And that's good. Okay, Michael, thank you very much for your call. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Um, I'd just like to comment on that is that one of the problems is, is that many of these people have been providing large levels of care to family members. And so those people, not only is it they're not visiting, but they're also not providing care that they couldn't previously doing. So they were sort of assisting the staffing, which is, you know, making it much more difficult in homes. Yeah, I, I remember having a conversation before the the lockdown at long-term care homes, and there were a lot of people who were saying, well, you know, th- that shouldn't happen. Uh, what is your view about w- when families should start being allowed back in, or is, is that at this point just too dangerous? Um, I, I think that given where we are right now, it's probably not the smartest move, although, you know, I think... I. I think we're all starting to feel the mental health implications of all of this self-isolation and uh, the elderly in these homes are, are not immune to that. In fact, I think they're more susceptible to it. I have some clients who've been in touch with me that, you know, they can't use the phone and they're, they're, they don't understand a Zoom call. 
And so there's very little communication with some of these people whose, you know, their their child's face is the only one that they recognize anymore and are not even seeing that person. So it's it's a fine balance, but with with how much the outbreak is is widespread, I, I don't think that we're going to be seeing visits anytime soon. Okay. Uh, I'm going to take a call from Alexis now. He says he wants to contact Melissa, but I'm, I'm assuming that's because you have an issue with a nursing home, Alexis? Uh, no, it's not with a nursing home, but there's two things I want to say. First, Libby, I want to thank you for taking my call. You're welcome. And I think your show and your staff should be awarded for superior media reporting, not just on this COVID-19 problem, but I've listened to your show for a very long time. And you you keep uh, the public so abreast of very important issues and the facts of what's going on. Um, I find your show most educational, and I think you people should get an award for the kind of reporting you do. Thank you very much. I just want to say Alexis is not a relative. And uh, let's move on to something that is of, of, of uh, wider interest. So thank you for the compliments. But, but um, to the issue at hand, uh, the Alexis. The issue at hand is I would like to get the number for um, Melissa because I, my experience is not with um, a, a long-term home. I live in my own private home. Um, it's a condo that I rented. And I am being, I am actually being victimized. Ah, that's, uh, okay, we'll make sure that you uh, get that. Um, we'll call you back with that information. I would appreciate okay. it if, if I could have her number. Okay. I would be very grateful. Okay. Thank you. Thanks. Okay, bye-bye. Okay, let's go to Linda in Simcoe County. Hello, Linda. Hey, Libby, how are you? Fine, how are you? Good. Um, I actually called back um, a while ago. I was the lady that spoke to you about um, having issues with my mom going into the nursing home, and they were giving her generic drugs, and she needed to have three reactions from three different drugs. And I think that um, that when you're in the middle of it, like I am with a parent in the nursing home, before this virus was an issue, people really don't know the severity of of what these seniors go through um, when they go into a nursing home. Um, Simple things, like I said, well, we have to give them generic drugs because that's mandated by the ministry. They have to have generic, um, you know, uh, underwear for, you know, if they have accidents because that's mandatory. That's all we can give them. Um, Their food. My mother has not had a real potato since she's been in there um, since October of 2019, it's all uh, boxed dry potatoes. I mean, I I think that prisoners in in a jail actually get better food than these senior citizens. Canned canned peas, um, just low grade um, food quality. Um, I feel for my mom. She's got um, all her faculties. She just uh, has her mobility issues. So. When she calls me and she begs me for a real nice salmon sandwich, and I take it to her. How how sad is that? You know. Uh, so yeah, have you know, this virus bring everything to the front, and everybody's all of a sudden now saying how bad it is. Oh, you guys have no idea if, unless you have somebody in the middle of it. 
Well, I mean, it's it's good that that everybody sort of can't look away. Uh, Linda, thanks very much for your call. And Thank uh, you. I hope that soon enough you'll be able to bring your mother a sandwich again. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, in the Auditor General's last report, there was this business about three-month-old eggs. I mean, it, has that situation been addressed? Who knows? Um, Jane, uh, you, you know, you hear this all the time. Oh, absolutely. I mean, they only get about $9 a day for the in change for food and long-term care. Um, we, you know, fresh fruit, fresh vegetables, um, quality, you know, food is, is few and far between. It's a lot of complaints about that. Um, and, you know, it doesn't really help, uh, with the health of the person if, you know, everything you're getting is, you know, fried and, and not fresh and stuff. So, I mean, it certainly, um, creates other problems and it was certainly was a focus of the auditor general and we'll see in their next, when they do their review of what changed. Okay, let's take a call from Pat. Hi, Pat. Good morning. There's a very easy solution to this. It's called money. So I think, should we increase the rate of HST to 20% or just put a 10% surcharge on everybody's income tax? That would do it. We just need the money. Everybody talks about, oh, how terrible it is, but nobody solves the real problem. Where's the money going to come from? Well, I'm... I'm I'm not sure that it's just a question of money. Um, so you know what, Pat? Hang on. I, we're going to let you go. I'm just going to put a – we don't have much time left. A final question to Jane and Melissa. Um, so, uh, ladies, there there was a call that the province should take over some of these nursing homes. And I think the province widely said we're not in that business. Uh, they've done that in British Columbia, but you know, some of these places, notably that horrible place in Quebec was charging people up to $10,000 a month. And there were these horrible conditions there. So is, is the problem that there's not enough control? I mean, these are for profit enterprises and some of them make a lot of profit. Yeah. I mean, Jane and I have discussed this issue at length and I got to tell you, um, the, the majority of my cases, are against privately run homes, not the government-run facilities. I don't think it's only a question that we need more taxpayer dollars uh, to fix this problem. I think it's uh, there needs to be oversight. We need to have more stringent regulations. It, it's a combination of things, but it's also how these funds are being used and the transparency or lack thereof of what's actually going on behind closed doors. Jane? Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think that, you know, part of the, there definitely is a, a profit um, issue here um, with between private companies and then management companies as well. Uh, sometimes homes have both. Um, uh, you know, some of the, for, you know, not-for-profits are putting in extra money. So, I mean, it's certainly it's, it's money issues, but it's also ensuring that the rules are followed. And I think that there has been an absolute failure of the government to do that. Um, and so we need to make sure that if you're going to have rules, they're going to have to comply with them. Yeah, we have rules coming out the wazoo. It's, it's yeah. just so many rules, so little so little time to enforce them. Um, anyway, uh, we've got to go. Uh, this is obviously something that is totally top of mind. Uh, thank you so much. And, and I'm sure we'll hopefully be talking to you soon, maybe with some better conversation about this. Maybe something will get done. Thank you so much, Jane Medus and Melissa Miller. Thank you. Thank you.
You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.